Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 22. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always, every week, is the kaleidoscopic Mitchell Davis. What's up? <laughs> hey, Tony, what's going on? Nothing, man. I'm good. Uh, I'm really good. How about you? I'm, I'm great. Um, you know, really busy this weekend, as usual, but, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, good to sit again and, and um, talk this week. Yeah, man, we've got, uh, we're, we're super excited. We've got our second special guest coming on the show, and it's a very very special guest and i'm just going to introduce him right now and say hi what's up to our guest mr tom moon hello how you all doing we're doing good yeah so uh tom moon obviously the author of the book that this podcast is based on uh, 1000 recordings to hear before you die and uh you know just just all around accomplished writer you've written for rolling stone and and many 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 publications over your career and and uh, also musician um you've been playing some jazz lately yeah. <laughs> uh you know in sort of a weird twist the uh the journalism business that i was in forever uh has really imploded at least the one where you actually get paid for your opinion yeah and you, uh, you're actually paid to write at some depth about a record. Um, there, those that still happens, but not very much. And I found myself enormously frustrated uh, trying to fit into the internet economy. And uh, I had always played music. I was a student of the saxophone. I went to music school. I went to University of Miami School of Music and played professionally there for several five six years. Uh, and had good gigs. You know, I was on the road with Maynard Ferguson for a year. I played with, uh, backed up Tony Bennett and The Fifth Dimension and tons of other people, uh, sort of in the hotels of, of Miami. And as I was in this frustrating thing of trying to find uh, writing work after the book, and um, I, I, I found myself picking up the horn and playing again and going out to jam sessions and sort of reacquainting myself with music on that level it's been great very humbling but great cool <laughs> yeah that's cool. awesome i mean it's awesome to be always to be able to sort of rediscover your musical roots and um go back out there and yeah i mean that's a that's a i'm i love that you're doing that i mean i keep seeing on facebook that you you uh post you know that you're doing a like an open night open mic night this night and and come out and see me this night and yeah it, yeah, I you know it's funny. It's it's such a weird thing to see social media work from that level. But uh, I found it very difficult to, as a writer, give away everything I was doing. Um, I'd always been paid for my work as a writer, and uh, I'm quite happy to give away music uh, and and to spend a lot of time like sort of bombarding people with you know, Facebook posts about where I'm, what I'm doing and where, but, uh, not so much as a writer. I don't know why that is. It just, I guess it, it's, I'm old school and that's the way I came up. 
Mm. Well, yeah. And plus, I mean, that's where your career was. Um, and, you know, doing a lot of writing and it's, it's a weird thing. I mean, this whole internet phenomenon and now sort of everyone expects every, you know, everything, especially creative content, you know, they, they expect it kind of for free. And yeah. uh yeah, it's it's it can be frustrating and challenging, definitely. Uh I would don't say Don't you think it has uh, don't you think it has huge implication for creators of all kinds? And you know, it's like this thing about mu- musicians getting paid for their, you know, recording work uh is is still unresolved however many years later. Uh and that's that's kind of terrible. You know, in in the sense of how creativity moves forward and sort of the continuum of people uh, who have creative ideas, it's like if they are not able to make some sort of living doing it, uh, you know, we're kind of in a world of hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, y- you know, I kind of came up, I-, I don't know, I guess you could say as a sort of Internet generation or whatever. Uh, but, you know, when the Internet sort of exploded and really kind of tromped all over a lot of the ways that things were done, you know, like you were saying um, how you used to be able to uh, get paid to write about records and there was a lot of that going on. And now there's uh, kind of not a lot going on, uh, and largely due to the Internet, I'm guessing. Yes, um, that's right. But, you know, it's not even that. I mean, you know, it's one thing to be like, you know, a, an unemployed or underemployed person and having sour grapes. The, the the more pertinent issue is that most of the people who are writing and do have cultivated platforms, even at professional or semi-professional sites like Pitchfork, um, are not necessarily critics in the sense of people who spent a lot of time just listening to records and having to engage records that they in styles of music they didn't like or didn't know well and you know my model was always someone like John Perellis at the New York Times who uh, threw himself into any and all kinds of music and was treated the critics job as the responsibility to learn about it not just to say all right i know about indie rock and you know indie rock <laughs> in the 1980s is where i live right yeah, dude i i totally agree with you i mean that that's what mitch and i are really trying to do on this show and that's what really bothers me when i uh, go to some of these sites um <clears throat> even a few i've seen uh, modeled on your book i have to say um not uh, there's one we really like called recording the recordings but I've seen a couple of others that just sort of resort to um, when they're talking about uh, albums they're not familiar with. For instance, like the John Adams' uh, Death of Klinghoffer, for, just to right. use that as an example. And they just sort of write a couple sentences and just basically say, I didn't like this album, it sucked. I just right. It drives me nuts to see yeah. that, you know? Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally know what you're, uh, <laughs> what you're saying, but... Um, yeah, you know, this writing this book from a, a true, obviously, uh, like you said, um, a true critic's uh, point of view, you know, approaching this book, uh, covering a thousand recordings of any and all genres. I mean, obviously, you know, a- as with everybody, you have genres that you're more familiar with, you know, you're more sort of lean towards and all that stuff. And, um, I, just how did you uh, this is a really general question but how did you go about assembling all these um albums and the sort of tack on question how did you sort of make sure that 
the book wasn't leaning towards you know your natural leanings if, if that makes right. any sense which which let's face it everyone's human and everyone has their comfort zone <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah and i'm no different uh well, the first thing th- that I think a lot of people missed about the mission of the book is that it was never – my marching orders were to give people who were just starting out an exploration of music a thousand places to start. It was not in, ever intended to be a definitive 1,000 best ever or 1,000 of, you, you know, even – the the cream of the crop kind of right. thing. It was right. more uh, uh, the idea that if you're in this world where everything's accessible now, and all you have to do is point your browser to some place, and you know if if you've never heard of Black Sabbath, say you find your way to their history and their recordings in you know two clicks uh, to sort of say, all right, if if you're curious, here's a place to start in this world, and and in this world and in that world. And what I liked about that was, uh, you know. As critics, we all spend a lot of time writing about records that are sort of obligatory, that you can't ignore. Uh, to, you know, the, today's Sunday papers all over the country today are carrying uh, commentary on the Bruce Springsteen Wrecking Ball record that comes out Tuesday. And, you know, that's fine. And that's, you know, that's a valuable part of criticism. But what I what struck me about the mission that that the publisher wanted for this book was how great it is to be able to you know sort of be the tour guide that shines the flashlight for somebody who is just starting out and maybe doesn't even have the frame of reference that uh, a, a musician might take as automatic or you know or just because of generations passing doesn't even really have an appreciation for something like the Beatles or Bob Dylan so you know the the initial curating uh, mission was to sort of go, all right, if you, if I'm going to be that person for a kid who's crazy about music and only knows maybe whatever, LMAFO or, or you know, yeah, yeah. the Jonas Brothers, more absurdly, <laughs> um, if, if that's where they're starting, what do they need to know to sort of have a roadmap to find their way to a lot of different stuff? And you know, the internet as a search tool is great, but you have to have something to put in the search box, don't you? Yeah, and yeah. so the, the 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 first idea for me was what could what are things that someone who is going to be passionate about music and theoretically anyway has an open mind might need to hear to to sort of consider themselves a, a uh, an astute listener of music. And, you know, right away, you would probably come up with with that as your paradigm. All of us can come up with a a list that far exceeds uh, the number of 1,000. I mean, (laughs) you know, there is uh, there were so many things that I knew from day one I was going to have to leave out. And I would I had to be okay with that. Um, But and that was the genesis behind this idea in that little box at the bottom of the uh, entries saying, okay, next stop, and then after that, just this idea that there's plenty more. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the the first pass that I made was really just uh, spending weeks listening and walking around talking to people and uh, with a notebook and always going, all right, you know. This mythical listener who I pegged to be about 14 or 15 years old, uh, who 
you know, had access to a fast computer and was able to try anything and everything, you know, what would I throw at him? And, uh, you know, some days it was all about music from Africa. And some days I would I'd be like, all right, well, in music from Africa, we have to have something from South Africa. We have to represent, you, you know, the great drumming traditions. We have to catch, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, you know, in that world, I knew some and wanted to learn more. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I'd sort of covered a lot of African music in the 80s. So I had a backlog of recordings to start with. And I would just go through and, you know, obviously sometimes the consideration was about what was available. The publisher did not want it to be a thing where every recording was only available in Europe, say, or <laughs> right. in the in the home country of whatever it was and not available in the U.S., uh, which proved to be a big problem in Brazil and, and Africa. You know, some things that I would have immediately gone for were at the time of, that we were working on the book not available. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I know that, um, I mean, I'm 42 now, Tom, and if I had been 14 when I first picked this book up, I would have carried around everywhere I went. And I mean, I, I'm, I, I read it even now pretty avidly, but, but, I, but your point of view where you have someone who who wants to know music and and is and is willing to try different things? Yeah, this this would be perfect, you know. And and I think you did a good job from from that perspective. Where, like you're saying, you're not trying to, you know, just throw everything at people. You know, just just kind of like here's a a good starting point. You know. Well, thanks, and that that was really the mission. I mean, both because it's impossible for any one person, I don't care how good you are as a critic oh, yeah. and how much stuff you've taken in, to to arrive at a definitive list of best ever. Mm -hmm. that, uh, you, yeah, you know, yeah. like we can all have our own personal best, but best ever is another thing. And I guess I didn't answer the part of your question that had to do with personal, uh, like my own proclivities and where I would go uh, because of my taste. And, you know, uh, what I learned covering lots of concerts uh, as at a newspaper, I worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer for about 20 years, was that on any given night, you would turn up at a, a concert hall or an arena, and there'd be thousands of people that were really dialed into being there, and they were completely excited, and often... <clears throat> I'd be, you know, the sort of music snob going, Ugh, the, I, you know, I know I'm going to hate this, you know, or whatever. I know I'm not going to, uh, like, I'd have an, an element of dread. And my, my mission then, and that moment became, what is it, to trying to figure out what is it that people respond to in this, whether that would be Bruce Springsteen or, you know, Beyonce or whoever. And yeah. that... Just the, the discipline of saying, all right, this isn't my thing, but I know that people get it. And I actually treated the, the, the canvassing phase where I was listening to a ton of stuff and just trying to make decisions about, does this, is this a good entry or is this a good recording that jumps off to other recordings? A lot of that, I was like, you know what? There's a ton of music that I didn't pay attention to in 20 years writing about music that I better start li listening to. 
And, you know, country, for example, I worked at a place where there was another critic who covered country. And so, you know, I would listen to it in passing. I would hear some important recordings, but I never really got the, and, you know, interview artists from time to time, but I never really got the sort of history and through lines of country the way I did, say, rock and roll. And um, I was very interested in treating the research process as edifying myself. And I felt that if I was able to be the open-minded listener that uh, I intend my reader to be, then, you know, when I come upon something that I don't know at all, like Celtic music, which I made the mistake in the first meeting with these editors of saying, yeah, you know, there's... I want you to know I have some blind spots. One of them is Celtic music. And, you know, there was one of the people at the table was like, how can you possibly say that you're a music critic and you're going to do this book if you don't know anything about Celtic music? <laughs> Which was uh, totally defensible. I get it. You know, and I, I, my only response was, look, no matter who you get, either you get a classical guy who knows everything about that stuff and could not tell you why Thelonious Monk matters, or you get a you know somebody else who's a generalist who doesn't know anything about classical. Or, you know, you're going to have blind spots no matter where you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I treated it as a you know it was a humbling mission of like let me find out what what it is that people who love Celtic music what do they love and why. And, you know, I had help with classical and opera. And thank God, because, boy, is that an amazing world. And it, <laughs> yeah. it's a world where there is no possible way, even the best critics have not heard the 10 iterations of the Beethoven cycle, say, or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a giant thing. I mean, when we, when we covered Beethoven, for instance, you know, uh, oh, <laughs> most of these, um, uh, most of these, you know albums you have in the book are single albums but um you know the album you put in there for beethoven symphonies is beethoven symphonies one through nine right <laughs> and, you know we had to put pull two excerpts from <laughs> right you know from those well, are like the, god I, right and i did a lot of cheating like that only because i was interested in more than ju I, I wanted to maximize the number of different looks that somebody would get and you, you know the fact that so many that the, the beethoven cycle is a good example have been packaged together and are intended, you, you know, I mean, there are better recordings of the fifth and the ninth for sure than the one that we recommended. But uh, the idea that someone could make one purchase or dive into one spot and hear all the symphonies and then use that as a basis for, all right, now let me hear somebody else doing these and let me hear a, a, a period recording from the 1950s or 60s. And what does that say? And how did the performance practice change over 30 years? Things like that. Yeah. Yeah, man, huge decisions. And how how long did it take from, from like beginning to, you know, to the very end? How long did it take you to do this, compile it and write it, you know, write it? Yeah, I worked on it pretty much exclusively for three and a half years. I, I did take other writing work uh to some sometimes to make ends meet sometimes to retain relationships i i review stuff for npr sometimes and i felt it was important to keep listening to new stuff and keep engaging it on some level uh though that listening did go way down um so but it was about three and a half years and of that time the first year was very little writing 
in terms of final drafts. I mean, I, I forced myself to basically throw down notes while I was listening uh, to a lot of different things. And in the beginning, you know, there was we had the luxury of, all right, well, we know there's some no-brainers. We know we're going to have to do kind of blue. We're going to have to do blonde on blonde. You know, the, the, like there were some things that we couldn't escape. Right. And I tried to write some of those pretty early. But the, the process in general took three and a half years. It was a lot of writing, editing. The person who indexed the book had a ton of work because we didn't come up with a final list of the thousand until literally the last six months. <laughs> I was still adding stuff. Wow. And, wow. You know, I, I jettisoned a bunch of entries. I probably had 40 or 50 written entries that at one point or another I said, okay, that doesn't work. And to go back to your point about personal taste, one of my favorite records when I was a kid, when I was in high school, was Super Tramp's Crime of the Century. <laughs> and I listened to that record endlessly. And, you know, I mean, they're certainly a guilty pleasure kind of band now. They're seen that way now. But to me, at the time, that was really interesting music. I loved it. And I, I wrote four different versions of an entry for that record. None of them myself or the editors that I was working with, nobody thought we captured it. And so there were times when things didn't make the book just because I couldn't make a case for them. Mm. <laughs> wow, interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, let, let's let's go on, um, if you don't mind, um, let's go on to the music because sure. I think we could talk a sit lot here and about talk it. about this forever. <laughs> yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Uh, Let's go on to the music. Um, this week, we're going to be talking about uh, Black Sabbath's Paranoid. Uh, Ruben, is it Blades or Blades? I've heard it pronounced both ways. I pronounce it Ruben Blades. But Okay. All right. Well, that's just easier. Ruben Blades and uh, Willie Colon, uh, their album Siembra. Uh, then we're going to look at Blind Blake, Ragtime Guitar's Foremost Finger Picker. Um, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, their album Monin. And then finally, Bobby Blue Bland, Two Steps from the Blues. Um, so, <laughs> again, a, a lot of diverse stuff this week. But that's how we like it. Um, and we're going to start with Black Sabbath's Paranoid, released in 1971. And uh, this, for me, I mean, Black Sabbath is, uh, you know, we we're talking about uh, our comfort zones and our non-comfort zones. I mean, this is absolutely one of my comfort zones. This is like my roots here um you know what half these songs on this record you know are songs that i learned to play on guitar when i first started and played in garage band you know with my friends scott and steve in high school <laughs> you know pretty much every day we played uh half this album if not more of this album um and uh yeah mitch what do you think of this album well to me it's just it's just one of those records that it definitely was inspiring, you know, as as far as, you know, you know, heavy metal bands were concerned. I mean, and I mean, there really wasn't, I guess, a, a heavy metal medium, so to speak, you know, really before this, you know, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of bands that that kind of rocked really hard. I mean, you know, you had like Led Zeppelin and but but no, nobody that was kind of dark like this where they were, you know, kind of off to the side kind of like you know i don't know and in, in, in a sense had an had an attitude of 
you know, like the, you know, the world screwed up and, and you're going to pay and, you know, we're going to rock out while, while all that's going on, so to speak, I guess. Um, but, but definitely, you know, just, I know like a huge influence on so many, so many bands that, that came after them. Uh, you know, I, I, I was reading something about, uh, I guess Kirk Cobain said that his influence on Black Sabbath, he felt like Nirvana was kind of like a cross between Black Sabbath and the Beatles. Um, and in a sense to where they, you know, they, they would just have kind of like these, these jams where they would, you know, you know, break out. And I guess, you know, the, the kind of like the clever, you know, style of, of music arrangement that they would use in the lyrics, you know, but, um, you know, definitely, uh, you know, I, I love, you know, so much on this record. Iron Man is just one of those songs that, you know, I mean, if, if you never even play guitar, you've, you've mimicked playing guitar to this song, <laughs> right. you know? <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, I, I just love the record. Yeah. Tom, what do you think of this? Well, I mean, everything y'all said the, the, to add, I'd just say this ends up being a prototype for a ton of different music, but also uh, an orientation to how to make a riff. You know, they come right out of, I hear them, uh, instrumentally out of cream and bands like that from the the late 60s and what they what they're doing by the point of this record and masters of reality is they figured out how to sort of distill that two bar like the sunshine of your love kind of riff into something that is darker that has more sort of uh mysticism around it and yet provides the platform for some absolutely great vocal hooks. I mean, you know, obviously Iron Man sort of a, a hook machine kind of tune, but some of the other tunes I think have that too. Yeah, well, you know, their guitarist Tony Iommi is uh arguably one of the greatest uh riff meisters, I guess you could say, <laughs> in rock history. Yeah. Um he's written some of the greatest riffs. I mean, that every guitar player at really any level of playing has played these or has has wanted to play these. I mean, even up to a couple years ago, um, when I was still teaching guitar and had many um, uh, students who were who were kids, you know, eight nine years old, uh, coming in saying, "I want to learn how to play Iron Man." Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's an incredible thing. You know, I, I would ask them, I said, "How do you know Iron Man?" <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, usually it was like, "Well, I I." I played on rock band, you know, that was a big thing. Um, you know, the video game rock band, um, or they heard it through their parents or whatever, but it's still this thing that's constantly being played. You know, this riff from Iron Man is just this, you know, kind of like smoke on the water. Those two, uh, tunes, you know, just something that every guitar player pretty much, uh, plays or wants to learn, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, this song, Iron Man, we're going to start with Iron Man. Um, the iconic, uh, song Iron Man um, and uh, I think it's pretty familiar out there I mean I'm sure there's some listeners that we all, we always have to assume that some listeners out there haven't heard it <laughs> you know um, which we had to do for the Beatles I sort of made a comment when we were covering the Beatles like I feel kind of dumb playing some of this stuff because everybody's heard it but we can't assume that everybody's heard it, you know? Well, right. And now anymore, even with rock band and stuff like that, we're in this generational churn where 
you know, people, you can't assume anything. And people, even, you know, great guitar playing rock kids, you know, may not find their way to this necessarily. And that's a shame. Yeah. I, you know, I saw this thread on uh, Facebook that was taken from Twitter after the Grammys. Oh, I, yeah, you saw I know. that about all the kids who had no idea who Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney was. was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. The, all the WTF. Paul McCartney, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, Iron Man. Um, I don't know. Do you guys have anything um, to add about Iron Man before we play it? Nope. No, no, man. Let's let's go ahead. Yeah, and it, it, it just speaks for itself, really. So this <laughs> is Black Sabbath with Iron Man. We just heard Iron Man by Black Sabbath, and we're going to move on to War Pigs. Um, and this is a, uh, you know, a song, a kind of anti-Vietnam war song, sort of anti-war song. Um, again, you know, in their style, dark and brooding, but really kind of powerful in its lyrics and sort of scathing. And um, um, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think of this, Tom? War Pigs it's track one (laughs) and to me that really says a lot on these kind of records by this point by 1970 71 early 70s people are uh figuring out that you know even then the attention span was limited and uh they were gonna almost all the great records from that period start out ferociously and i feel like this does that perfectly this is one of the great track ones Mm. 
Oh, definitely. What about you, Mitch? What do you think of this? Uh, just a, you know, the, basically the same thing he was saying. Just really, really, you know, ferocious from beginning to end. Just you know, great, great guitar riffs. I mean, the the mix of of, of Ozzy's vocals, and that's one thing about this song that 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 kind of you know rings in my head every time I hear it. The way the way Ozzy, you know, you know, kind of is, is is almost like almost like reading poetry you know i mean it it's it's not poetry but it, the way the way his vocals come off and 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 what he's singing about it it's, it's almost like that and i mean in in a in a sense you know kind of like a dark poem but uh you know i i i definitely um have have liked this song for a long time um you know and it, obviously this song has, has been a big influence on on so many metal bands even some ba bands have have covered this song like um, I think Faith No More. Uh, they do a, an awesome cover of this song um, on uh, their uh, their album, The Real Thing, that I that I just totally love. And um, you know, just uh, just a great great kind of snapshot of what they were they were all about. It, it it's hard to believe, and I mean, reading the the book, it's hard to believe that that most of this they did live in the studio and apparently only took what three days to record this whole album yeah. right yeah uh, likewise, I mean, that's, that's the, crazy the one before it masters the reality same way very quick yeah yeah and it's yeah. really it's it's really cool to hear this album and uh the one previous because this represents a time in uh, the history of black sabbath when they're all kind of still there, you know what I mean? They're all kind of really present in their minds. And, That's uh, right. And, That's totally right. Yeah, and, and sort of, you know, really hungry and really sort of, uh, you know, War Pigs is, uh, it's a profound song, you know, lyrically and, and musically. And, um, you know, unfortunately, later in their career, you know, they just got so bogged down with drugs and alcohol. And um, it just kind of, you know, after this record, it, it really just kind of slowly started to fall apart for them mm -hmm. um, after this. And so this is really represents a, a really sort of golden time in their output. Um, uh, yeah. So let's let's check this out. Cool. This is Black Sabbath with War Pigs. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning as the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, larger!
And we just heard War Pigs by Black Sabbath from their album Paranoid. And we're going to move on to Ruben Blades and Willie Colon, their album Siembra from 1978. Um, and this is sort of a classic statement uh, for salsa music. Um, Ruben Blades is an intensely interesting guy. Mm. Um, you, uh, Mitch, you sort of described him on the last show as kind of a Renaissance man. He's, he's going all over the place. Yeah. He's, he's got all kinds of stuff. I mean, just from, from my perspective, looking at him over the years, um, cause I, I wasn't as familiar with his music. I, I knew he definitely, you know, was musically very talented, but I did not realize how, how busy a man he was until I looked closer um, at his life. I mean, cause I, I remember, um, him being in a few movies here and there. And then also I think in the, in the nineties, like in the early nineties, I remember him running for some sort of political office and then, and then looking back, you know, kind of after the fact and, and finding out he, I guess he was running for president of Panama. Um, that's right. Which, yeah. which I was like, wow, really? You know, he, and he, he did fairly well. He didn't win, but he did fairly well. And then wound up being a sort of like a music, uh, or, or tourism diplomat or, or some sort of, you know, dignitary for Panama, uh, where he was like actually appointed like a, a position. But yeah, he, you know, and is also apparently like a, a lawyer where he, he has like a law degree, you know, went to Harvard, I think, uh, just, just amazing. You know, the, the guy is, he's, he's deep guy, you know, on top of being, you know, great singer and songwriter. So. Yeah, you know, definitely. Um, and Willie Colon is no slouch either. I mean, by the yeah. time of this record, he had been one of the main arrangers and sound architects for Fania, which is the label that put this out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the great New York salsa of the late 60s and 70s, not all of it has his stamp on it, but he's definitely one of two or three, you know, sort of house arrangers. Fania, I think of a little bit like Motown, where there were a number of creative sort of teams and rhythm sections and uh, whole approaches going on at the same time. And, you know, it would almost not matter who the the title star on the record was. If you had Willie Colon writing the charts, it was going to be nailed. And uh, this is late in the run of Fania. Fania was well established and had already sort of fallen off a little bit by 1978. But when you see what he was doing uh arranging wise on with st- some of these tunes it's like yeah you, you know it's at another level i mean they're very harmonically sophisticated there's a lot of you know sort of interesting use of sus chords interesting all kind of you know really interesting not typical to salsa harmonic tricks mm. yeah 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 i mean there's a lot of crossover here between uh sort of jazz bi- you know, jazz big band and, and, uh, you know, we can really hear that in the first track that we're going to talk about Pedro Navaja. Um, and, uh, this tune, it's essentially, it's like taking Mac the knife and, uh, they're sort of taking the, the underlying structure from Mac the knife and then sort of laying a, a kind of, uh, latin skin over it or something you know um, with with a different you know a, a sort of similar story but um but slightly changed um 
Yeah, what do you think of this, Tom? Pedro Navaja. Oh, I just, I love this. I think this is one of the crowning achievements of salsa music. Uh, it was released in 78, and I, I was playing in salsa bands in Miami in the early 80s, and it was still, you would still hear it. 1982, 83, 84, you would still hear it in clubs and on the radio. And when people heard it, they just went nuts. It's like, you know, it's long. It lasts a long time. It's a little bit like Stairway to Heaven in that sense. It has some episodes. <laughs> it moves around a lot. And, uh, you, you know, it's a journey. And people, I mean, it was just one of those things where, uh, you know, as soon as you heard it, you were like, wow. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's such a cool tune. I really loved the um, the West Side Story quotations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to yeah. live in America yeah. and the yeah. sirens and you know uh-huh. everything. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's it's like it's telling telling a story and 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 has like you know drama and everything mixed in it. Like you said with the sirens at the end. Um, I I I enjoyed listening to. This. I had never really listened to it before and. Uh, you know, definitely in, in, enjoy the uh, the rhythm f- for sure. I mean, you know, there's 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 just a an element of salsa music, obviously that that's gonna make you wanna you know move and and dance. But but here it's 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 so crisp, and and at times you know, like you said, with with the way they play with the rhythms, so much different from anything I'd really heard before. And um, you know, just uh. Ruben is is just a great vocalist. I mean, I, I love I love the way his voice sounds, and I love the way you know he mixes with the band. You know, just a you know really really good good uh, exposure to some some salsa music that I probably would not have listened to before. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know if this will make sense to to either one of you, but <clears throat> after listening to especially this song. Um, just just the way it feels and the sort of subject matter um it it conjured this weird connection in my mind with the baby huey and the babysitters album hmm. if that makes yeah. any sense i know it's like musically totally different but um just, i don't know just maybe that's just me but <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hear it yeah let's hear it um do you want to uh introduce this one tom no it's fine just hit play all right, play Pedro Navaja. Y créanme gente que aunque hubo ruido nadie salió. No hubo curiosos, no hubo preguntas, nadie lloró. Solo un borracho con los dos muertos se tropezó. Cogió el revólver, el puñal, los pesos y se marchó. Y tropezando se fue cantando desafinado. El coro que aquí les traje y da el mensaje de mi canción La vida te da sorpresa, sorpresa te da la vida, ay Dios
And we just heard Pedro Navaja by Ruben Blades and Willie Colon. We're going to move on to the song Ojos. Um, oh, one thing I wanted to mention about another thing about Pedro Navaja that I found out in my research um, that uh, apparently they made a movie based on this song in Mexico in 1984 without Blades input. And Blades response to that was to make a sequel. So there's a sequel to this song called Sopresas. Right. That, that continues, you know, the story, but for anyone that's interested. But um, yeah, so let's move on to Ojos. Um, I don't know, Mitch, what did you think of Ojos? Uh, just again, just the 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 sound of Ruben's voice. I mean, he just he just kind of has this this nice, you know, tenor sound in his voice where, you know, it just it just really, really makes this work for me, um, you know, and then the the horns also too on this song I, I really loved a lot you know and i not not really speaking spanish very well you know and not actually understanding what they say you know is you know not really anything that kept me from from liking this song you know most on this record uh than other than the other tracks i mean it's just one of those songs that that kind of stood out to me um because of the the, the way the arrangement was and you know, and, and Ruben's voice again, you know, just uh, just had such a great, great sound to it. And, um, you know, I and I think Ojos, I think that I think that's eyes. If I that's right. Yeah. And uh, and that's something I'm assuming, you know, when when he's singing, I mean, he's he's, you know, singing about, you know, someone in particular's eyes, you know, and I, and I said, don't speak Spanish. I'm not really sure. But that that's what I, I took from this song, you know, um, where he's. You know he's he's digging on somebody's eyes. You know the 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 way it sounds to me anyway. I I might could be wrong, but um, that's what it sounded like. Yeah, Tom, what did you think of this? Well, the, the, this whole ra- what this song is a good example of of the way Fania made records. I mean, there's I think there's only six or seven tracks on this record. Every track lives in its own tempo area, like you know there's there's not two similar grooves at all and uh each each groove itself is very singular and what the way they develop it is very singular and you know i think you can drop the needle on this record anywhere and get a sense of really inspired playing and arranging and uh, as uh, mitch said singing just the singing is just uh, beyond. I mean, he—he's—it's all flow. He's not trying to convince anybody of anything. He's just singing. Oh yeah, and one of the things I—I I just loved about you know this song and really the whole record is just how killer <laughs> this horn and percussion section is. Just how unbelievably tight they mm-hmm. are yeah. uh, as as a band. I mean, you experience this music, Tom, from you know from the inside. You know, as a horn player. You know, I mean, how how was it for you as a horn player playing this music? It's the best. It's so much fun. Um, you, you know, it's very challenging as a gringo to c- communicate clave rhythm and to, to actually play with clave. I mean, the clave is that 3-2 pattern that goes like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, you know, it seems simple. Uh, you know, it's the Bo Diddley beat in a sense. But... To actually do it and to execute within it is very difficult. And what you hear with the with this record and Fania in general is guys that just live the clave. I mean, obviously most of them are 
you know, sort of of the culture. But they, there were some gringos involved in in the making of these records. I'm not sure about this one in particular. And, uh, you know, they went to school on it, man. I mean, it's not something you pick up in an afternoon. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure, man. Well, let's check this out. This is Ojos from Ruben Blades and Willie Colon. Hay ojos de miles miradas, cristales que observan al mundo pasar. Ojos que encuentran fortuna mirando a la luna y a su resplandor. Hay ojos que emanan ternura y hay ojos de inmenso dolor. Ojos que en noches oscuras viven de amarguras y desolación. Pero hay ojos que saben reír, hay ojos de eterno fulgor. Ojos que ven en las flores de multicolores la gracia de Dios. And we just heard Ojos, and we're going to move on to our third album today, Blind Blake, the album uh, Ragtime Guitar's Free Most, Free Most, Foremost Finger Picker, uh, released in <laughs> 1990, but these are recordings made in the 1920s and 30s. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one of those, uh, you know, yet another one of those artists that I never heard of before I picked up this book. You know, totally new to me. Um, was this totally new, like a new discovery for you, or had you, Tom, or had you actually heard of Blind Blake? You know, I had heard of Blind Blake, and there was uh, only because of reissues. When the CD era started, uh, one of the great sort of windfalls was labels that had stuff in their catalogs from long ago. Uh, and could easily reissue them on CD. So you would you would have these records that had no connection to what was going on in terms of pop hits at the time, uh, like the Blind Blake collections and stuff like that. That people were the labels were issuing just be in the spirit of if you like you know guitar music, maybe you should check this out. It's been around for a long time. Uh, mm. So 
you know, I, I'll admit that I didn't actually listen to those records when they came in. You know, I mean, one of the great things about being a critic was they would just sort of arrive at your desk. Um, and at that time, now everything's a, an MP3 file. But uh, <laughs> I remember thinking with almost everything historical, I was like, you know what? I'm going to hang on to this uh, because there may be some, you know, new John Fahey worshiping young kid who uh, invokes Blind Blake to me. And I better at least have the record so I know what he's talking about. And uh, th that ha proved to be wise on my part. I was very lucky to have a collection where, you know, when I would talk to artists, they would sometimes say, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Blind Blake and, um, you know, or whoever. And I'd be able to go, oh, interesting. I know about that. I have that record. <laughs> uh, and this is one of those. And uh, yet when as soon as I heard it, I was like, you know what? This is really interesting. He's what he's done is he's taken the basic uh, sort of harmonic blueprint of ragtime, which is almost always played on piano and he's translated to the guitar in a very compelling way yeah i mean um you know like you said you know playing ragtime even on piano is challenging playing it on guitar is virtuosic i have to say yeah. um and uh you know one thing i thought was super interesting about blind blake and his story sort of when i was uh doing my research is that we know so little about his life, you know, this artist that, you know, lived in the 20th century. We, we know so little about him. I mean, we're, we're not sure where he was born. We're not sure how he died. We're not even sure what his real name was. Yeah. yeah you know, right. we, have, we have only one surviving photo of him. I mean, um, you know, reading about him, you know, I went through music school too, like all the way. And I did minors in music history. So, you know, when I was doing these, I had to research a lot of you know medieval and renaissance composers and when i'm reading about this guy it is like i'm reading about some composer from the 14th century yeah it's unbelievable you know? and there and and he's not the only one there are a lot of people like that i mean you know a uh, guy who lived in my town of philadelphia lonnie johnson you know he there, we know more about him he lived longer he had a longer career but you know he's still relatively underappreciated and under-researched uh you know, but Blind Blake's maybe an extreme example of that. A lot of guys in the blues are like that. Mm. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. Um, so let's move on to the first track, Diddy Wah Diddy. And uh, I don't know, Mitch, what did you think of Diddy Wah Diddy? Uh, the, the talk about his uh, sort of taking ragtime music and, and the style of the way it's played on piano and, and, and applying it to guitar, I mean, that that's definitely heard here where you know he he just kind of jumps around and, and and improvises in a way i guess that you know it, it seems almost as if nowadays you, you you have a lot of people doing that but i guess at the time this was something that that had not really been done very much before and um the the thing that comes to my mind also too about his sort of perception of how ragtime would come from you know basic you know piano playing and, and applying that to what he did kind of makes me think about a couple of artists who who are still up in recording now uh, one guy uh, herbie hancock who who took uh keyboard and, and clavinet and and kind of made it sound like a guitar and then stevie wonder also too did that and yeah. uh 
that's the first thing that, that came to my mind when I thought about that and how someone who could just visualize music and notes and, and taking what they had inside of them and just applying it, you know, it, and, and to see that happen and, and realize that, that this was not something that was, was ordinary at that time is, is a great thing, you know, to, to have it captured, you know, with, with this song and the other songs on, on this collection, you know, cause the, the guy, I mean, you can obviously listen to him and hear he could play, but, but also is, is a great improviser in a sense to where some of the guitar parts he plays, it, it almost sounds like two, two different guitars sitting and playing at once. <laughs> Sometimes, uh, but it's sometimes just one three. guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's just all kinds of stuff going on, and you're like, "Man, listen to that," you know? Because I mean, I don't, I don't play guitar, but I, I can definitely listen. And I mean, what I hear is is amazing, you know, coming from someone who who seemingly has, you know, very little past of of his own life recorded outside of this music, you know? Yeah, yeah. Tom, what do you think of Diddy Wah Diddy? everything <laughs> said uh yeah you know the the whole notion of uh, translating this intricate style to guitar i mean you just wonder what people must have been like seeing him perform live i mean you, you know a lot of them probably never heard ragtime piano even and mm. you know so to encounter him doing this live would have been like you know jaw-dropping i think yeah, it would be jaw dropping now. I mean, speaking, I am a guitarist and, uh, you know, speaking from my own experience, the guitar since the 1920s and 30s has, has gone through such a technical revolution, you know, not just in the instruments, but in the playing of that of the guitar, you know, and mm -hmm. seeing this now would be super impressive. I, I, I You know what I mean? It just mm -hmm. it has not lost its sense of of just wow uh yeah I, you know i wonder how pervasive these recordings were like you know i listened to someone like Jimi hendrix from later and i hear you know H hendrix doing a, a similar things like in this song diddy wa diddy um blind blake does the thing where when he comes in with a singing line sometimes he'll break out of the accompaniment and uh unison what he's singing on the guitar yeah. and then you know go back into the accompaniment you hear guys like hendrix doing that all the time you know in their music yeah. and i just wonder you know how how pervasive this was you know were they aware of blind blake i right. don't know i wonder too i mean you know especially in the techniques you mentioned and and also in stop time you know where it's like he'll he'll come to a point of a halt and then pick up again and all that stuff i mean you know that's the that that's all the British blues guys did that too. Yeah, right. Um, you know, yeah, revival. So let's check this out on this first track from Blind Blake. This is Diddy Wad Diddy. <laughs> Church, put my head on his seat. Lady said on his seat, Daddy, you sure is sweet, Miss Diddy Wah Diddy. Miss Diddy Wah Diddy. I wish somebody would tell me what Diddy Wah Diddy means. <laughs> 
I'll soon be gone. Just give me that thing you said on my diddy war diddy. My diddy war diddy. I wish somebody would tell me what diddy war diddy means. And we just heard Diddy Wah Diddy from Blind Blake, and we're going to move on to the incredible <laughs> Blind <laughs> Arthur's Breakdown. Um, and again, you know, from from a guitarist standpoint, I'm just I'm just blown away by this. I mean, you you did say in the book, Tom, you know, for the guitar hero in your life, you know, you should play this for him. And uh, I totally agree. I mean, anybody who's into guitar really, I mean, should hear this. It's like one of those tracks that every guitar player should hear, really. Yeah, that, um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and another thing that I find just incredible about this track is, you know, recording back in the 20s and 30s was not like recording now. You know, there were usually no second takes. There was no overdubbing. You know, you just sat down in a chair and you did it. And, oh. and you know, to just do this, just sit down and, and just do this. Uh, it's, it's just amazing. Um, yeah, Tom, what did you think of Blind Arthur's Breakdown? You, you just said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you, you know, it is jaw-dropping. It's something that, I, you, you know, when guitar player friends of mine hear it they're all like oh man <laughs> you know time to really reconsider some things yeah because that there is this not just facility but but eloquence and precision coming in so, from something from so long ago is monumental right and i mean i i, I don't, maybe it's wrong for me to assume this but i'm assuming that he was largely untrained you know, yeah, it, I don't know. I mean, that's another thing that we don't know about his, yeah. y- you know, background. Yeah, it would be interesting to know. You know, it, it would be interesting to know. I would love to know because, you know, if he is largely untrained, I mean, this is a guy. Then this can't be understated. I mean, this is a guy who who's a genius level player to be able to do this. Just, you, you know, like this, you know, and and do it, you know, to to where he really doesn't have any peers to look at. You, you know, I mean, he he's he's peerless, really, at, at this time. You know, when he's playing, um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Mitch, what did you think of, of this? Yeah, just what you were just saying. It's amazing to think if he was self-taught. You know, that's that's a yeah. He was a genius level guitar player where it was just a a thing that he was just born with, possibly. Uh, but but like like you guys are saying, we really don't know. I mean, there could be someone, another great unsung that inspired him or taught him. Um, but you know, that it may, it may become, you know, a thing that we find out later, maybe not, but either way, I mean, you know, just, a, a, a very, very awesome, awesome example of, of what he could do. Um, yeah. And, and like you said, in, in the process of recording, you know, to do it kind of sort of on the spot and, and without much, you know, editing or, or or anything like that just just a guy who could just flat out play and and not just play but 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 improvise and and put his own sort of you know persona and, and thumbprint into it 
like no other. So yeah, yeah, and this is just uh, another example of uh, a proof of why you know in the blues or even in like uh, the bluegrass genres, if you come across a tune that's like something something breakdown, you know that's the tune you want to listen to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, let's check this out. This is Blind Arthur's breakdown from Blind Blake. And we just heard Blind Arthur's Breakdown. And we're going to move on to Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, their album Monin from 1958. Um, and, uh, you know, Art Blakey, hugely influential um, and and really pervasive uh, jazz musician, jazz band leader, um, sort of jazz talent scout, I guess you could say. Mm. Um yeah, Tom, what do you think of Art Blakey? Well, uh, you, you know, the biggest problem for me looking at how to represent someone's output like his in the book was you really have about 10 records that are equally recommendable. Um, there, there are some with particular combinations of personnel that are really great, like the band with Lee Morgan and Wayne Shorter. There are some with where the writing is really great like this one has uh you know a great tune by benny golson the tenor player you know it it called and that tune's called along came betty by the way um actually has two two uh golson compositions on this record but you, you know you almost had to go okay do we take a live record from the cafe bohemia where he's great you know mm-hmm. Well ahead of this, but you hear in that record the sort of roots of all of hard bop, or do you go to something that's more of a typical blue note studio session like this, you know, or do you pick a? You could have easily made the case for 
one of the later records with uh, Wynton Marsalis on it. I mean, I don't think they're as completely inspired as the stuff he did on Blue Note, but nonetheless, they're good records. And Blakey was one of those people who just it, it took everything from the band around him and made it, it knit it all together into the a sound that was unmistakably his. It doesn't matter whether the tune is Bobby Timmons or written by Wayne Shorter or whoever. It's like when Blakey plays it in that usually a quintet format, it's it, it's him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and what I find so interesting about Blakey and his his kind of legacy on jazz are all the really notable people that came up through his band. I mean, you, you mentioned yeah. uh, a few. You know, I mean, some of them I saw um, are like you know Winton Kelly, Keith Jarrett, Horace Silver, Branford Marsalis, Winton Marsalis, Wayne Shorter, Donald Byrd, Kevin Eubanks. I mean, so just to name a Curtis few. Fuller. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and the Winton Kelly said but Bobby Timmons, great piano players, Horace Silver. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the list is yeah, incredible. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, let's start with his track, Monin. And uh, the thing that immediately jumped out at me from this track was how much did this inspire So What? <laughs> it has it has that yeah. da da that that same motive and, and this album came out one year before kind of blue did yeah um I don't, that's I, a really good point and you know at while we're at it how about Mingus Ahum <laughs> there's some overlap yeah. there too in this tune especially yeah 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 um, the gospel the, the the sort of gospel harmony uh, framework. Uh, was definitely in play, you know. It was out there in the culture, and a couple of different jazz guys were grabbing it and doing very interesting things with it. Bobby Timmons, I, I mean, this as a tune, this is one of the greats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. definitely. Yeah, Mitch, what did you think of Monin? Uh, just, just love it. Just one of those, just iconic sounding jazz songs that you know, you, you listen to, if, if you listen to jazz radio at all, especially, you know, I guess a, a traditional uh, jazz type radio station. Uh, also too, one thing about, about the, the, the genre, I guess, of, of music that, that I guess is this album carries a hard bop sound, you know, I mean, for, for me, you know, the, the labels of, of so-called, you know, so-called labels of jazz, you know, hard bop, bebop, you know, straight ahead whatever i mean it, it's good to kind of have something put in front of you have it defined and and, and kind of you know know better you know say like if you if you've never listened to jazz know better you know what what influences that label and um i mean you definitely hear you know which i guess a lot of hard bop tunes you know would incorporate the 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 rhythm and the soul and even the gospel sound of, of what is coming out of this. And, uh, and that's, that's what I, I hear when I listen to this is all that kind of mixed together where, you know, there, there's some great players and, and, and what they try to kind of put across is, is sort of like a, a harmonic mix of all of that, the, the soul, the blues and, and the gospel of, of, of a variety of type of of music's yeah. all coming together, so to speak, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right, um, right, right. But and, and also too, just our Art Blakey kind of being almost like a rudder for 
for a sailboat, you know, where, you know, he <laughs> yeah, had so many analogy. people, you know, so many talented people, you know, that that were around him and, and, and with him. But he kind of was like almost like at the at the center, almost like a catalyst, you know, not not, you know, too strong, but but strong enough to kind of lean and give hints. And, you know, that that's what I, I sense also in this song, too. Just uh, just Blakey's kind of, you know, point guard, if you will, to the arrangement, so to speak. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one thing I like about Blakey's playing is he can go from like really subtle and understated to kind of overt in your and in your face sort of on a dime you know mm. um, he, he just had a really distinctive style but and one of the uh, things that we're going to hear that I'm definitely going to play in the excerpt that we're going to hear from this song um, is Lee Morgan's trumpet solo from the beginning mm. of the song it's so it's such an awesome sort of uh, I mean I wrote in my notes slippy slidey solo yeah not a great <laughs> but um and uh you know it sort of ranges all over the place it's just an amazing solo and he does a thing in the solo that is pretty common in jazz and I, I could be wrong but i think he does this where he will in the midst of his you know improvised solo he'll throw in a quotation from another jazz tune or another jazz musician you know it's sort of like a nod to other jazz musicians or aficionados you know it just happens real quick and then he goes back into what he's doing um yeah and i think you hear blakey you know sort of giving a rejoinder to that you know in the in the moments that follow like picking up on that rhythm and the, the you definitely hear that kind of stuff in a lot of these blakey records they were you know they were all sort of having throwing out ideas from pop songs of the day you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah so let's hear this um this is monin from Art Blakey in the Jazz Messengers.
band we just heard moaning from Art Blakey, and we're going to move on to Blues March. Um, I don't know, Tom, what do you think of Blues March? Well, the y- y- this is one of the this is the other Benny Olson tune. Uh, y- you know, it's a it's a blues with some different chord changes to it, and it's the absolute like it's sort of an epicenter, great typical example of what Blue Note was doing in the hard bop era. Nothing fancy, lots of room for everybody. And uh, as Mitch said, Blakey as a catalyst, uh, which sometimes was, you know, to sort of uh, goad the soloist and really like aggressively push the uh, whoever's blowing. But then other times, you know, he he does that almost just by the way he keeps time and his ride cymbal patterns are tremendous throughout. I, I think any of these records that were made at Rudy Van Gelder's studio uh, for Blue Note render the, his the picture of his drums very well and specifically the ride cymbal, which it, you know if you want to learn how how jazz is how the the swing feeling of jazz is imparted to a group, there's nobody better than Blakey doing that. Mm. <laughs> yeah yeah mitch what do you think of this yeah just more on what, what tom said it, it it's great to to know that they sort of had like a language that they would speak to each other especially I'm, I'm sure when they were on stage where they could have like a full conversation in playing that no one in the audience could maybe even hear you know little subtle things like you said where he was maybe trying to you know go to solo on to, to hey you know what that was good let's let's have some more no don't stop you know or you know you know something else to to kind of rein things back in you know that that's an awesome thing to to have you know musicians even speaking with different instruments be able to kind of have their own little conversation amongst each other with the song within the song and um you know th- this song i mean just you know just kind of nice southern almost uh you know more new orleans sounding jazz uh with the beat of it and uh you know just a you know another great great track from uh from this uh collection just uh really 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 love you know kind of what what blakey could do you know with with the drums and 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 like tom was saying with the i guess with the ride symbol where you know it's just little subtle things that that would come out you know to kind of hit um something that that it kind of reminds me of not exactly because i mean james brown wasn't wasn't really you know obviously wasn't a jazz musician but but he, he himself could within the song kind of talk you know without really saying it in the words out you know to communicate with his band you know and 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 do little things you know on stage or or even in the studio to to kind of you know hit it it's something being really good or or you know something needing to change and I, I i love that kind of that kind of communication that that musicians can have you know where where they just it's almost like telepathic so to speak right right yeah one of the things i thought was interesting about this tune is um you know the overall tune you know, we're talking about um uh subtlety and all this stuff but the overall feel of this tune is not subtle at all i mean it's um it's almost like a parody of a march you know uh usually 
Um, in, in these tunes uh, and in jazz and stuff, you'd have at least some kind of syncopation going on against the beat, you know, to create like a groove and stuff. And this, it, with the exception of the soloist, whoever's soloing, everybody is on the beat. It's like, it's like chunk, 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 chunk. You know, it's just, it's this really overt march feel, you know, and uh, it just, it, I don't know. I just thought that was cool. Yeah, um, but it still swings. That's it, what's it does, so tricky yeah. about it. it it's <laughs> like it's not the typical spang spang alang kind of swing, but it swings. Make no mistake. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, somehow, yeah, mm. it still does. Um, so let's check this out. Um, this is Blues March from Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. We just heard Blues March from Art, Art Blakey. Uh, and we're going to move on to our final album of the day, Bobby Blue Bland, Two Steps from the Blues, released in 1961. Um, and uh, I don't know, let's start with you, Mitch. What do you think of, of this record in general? Uh, Bobby's just a, just one of the, the legendary voices of, of blues music. And I mean, and when I say blues, I mean kind of, you know, more soulful blues. Um that I, I mean, I, I know I, I kind of came up listening to from from my parents and some of my uncles. I have an uncle of mine that just he was really into um, blues music, especially in the 70s, where you had like a label like Malico 
that that just had tons of blues artists that along with Bobby Bland and 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 some other people, Johnny Taylor, but but he's just one of those guys that, you know, is is just his his voice is it's just really iconic. I mean, just one of those guys that kind of always sang from the throat and um, you know, just was one of those voices. I mean, and he still still performs and still tours and I think Bobby Blaine, he's about 80, 82 years old. Uh, he's really one of the last of, of his kind in a way where there aren't a lot of blues men that came up along with him that are still around, a few of them. But, um, you know, th this song in, in particular, I think the, the, the one where we're first going to talk about, I, I Pity the Fool, is, is just a, to me, is just like a great example of, of, his, of his style and 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 the way he could come off as just being so, so very cool and smooth and um you know just you know he's just one of those guys that just i i, I i've always loved his voice i mean he's he's had a lot of different kind of changes in style here and there but um that voice is always there at the center you know and like i said it just just so throaty and 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 it just when you hear it, it's just like being in a very small, tight nightclub, you know, that's full of smoke and, and people set up at a table. And, you know, I, I've, I've always I've always liked his voice, always loved Bobby Bland's voice. And I mean, it in this record, I think actually it's, it's more just Bobby Bland. The, the blue came along, you know, I think after a label change. But, um, you know, I've, I've always loved Bobby's voice. Yeah, Tom, what do you think of um, Bobby Bland or I Pity the Fool? Man, you know, the thing is, people think of blues and they think of blues shouters. You know, Big Joe Turner and uh, getting his start, like, singing behind a bar and, like, just pure power of a voice. And what Bobby Bland represents is the blues as intimacy. He's like he's like a crooner, I think. And he, he comes out of blues, but... He de you can tell from the moment you hear anything on this record that he was very aware of all the great jazz singers and all the great like sort of pop singers of the day, the, the people like Sinatra. I mean, he, he has the phrasing of someone who understands that there can be nuance within the blues and that it doesn't have to be like sort of loud and over the top and shouty and any of that. It can also be very sexy at you not not necessarily a whisper but you know he he uh, he's very understated and really anything on this record uh, it, it will will show that i pity the fool cry 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 does that too and you know when etta james died recently i i thought about how few of the people who we regard as blues icons actually have that sort of subtlety in their in their game and he he may be the best ever at that mm. yeah yeah, awesome. I agree. Let's just uh, let's just listen to it. Um, this is "I Pity the Fool" by Bobby Bland. I pity the fool. I say I pity the fool. Well, I pity the fool. I said I pity the fool 
heard i pity the fool and we're going to move on to his version of saint james infirmary and i mean this was uh super interesting for me to hear because earlier uh in one of our earlier episodes uh louis armstrong we we mm-hmm. yeah we we played the louis armstrong version uh which to me and you know uh growing up in uh, houston texas and spending a lot of time in new orleans um just invoked like new orleans funeral sort of vibe for me you know in very very new orleans this is man so different um yeah what do you think of this tom just that (laughs) you just (laughs) said (laughs) yeah i mean it's like uh uh sort of transforming a new orleans funeral into a you know 60s high school dance or something that's right. Yeah. <laughs> or something, as Mitch said, that that would thrive in a club. Like the, yeah. what this what this says to me is, uh, and this is true of a lot of the bluesmen of the time, is that th- you know their repertoire was not just the standard twelve bar. Baby, you hurt me. You know, uh, guys like him were were looking out in all directions, and you know. To really be an effective blues singer, you had to have some New Orleans. You had to have some repertoire that was outside of the box a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah definitely. But what do you think of this, Mitch? Yeah, just you know, the 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 thing with him is, like he said, he he definitely was going to try things that were were different, and 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 still kind of keep that feeling of of, of blues music. But but kind of have his own and, and and it's something he said earlier his own intimacy you know where you know he could be he could be just so very very smooth you know and and so very cool and and his style and his phrasing when he sang and I mean he he's just one of those guys that he's always had that characteristic about him you know it just never like he says never someone who who was really you know loud or rowdy i mean he he could do that but for the most part you know he was just he was just very 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 smooth even at times romantic you know um, oh yeah 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 where he he definitely you know could could draw a crowd especially when when he would go on the road i imagine bobby had the ladies you know lined yeah. up at the door i mean you know he he was just that that smooth and that cool i mean and like i said that there's something about the way he sang especially the way he sang from his throat i've never really known of anyone quite like him in the way his his voice is so earthy uh it was just made for the blues you know and um you know this i mean obviously this song has been done by so many people but uh his version of it is is a very good version and uh you know, just one of those that just kind of stands out, you know, 
above the rest. You know, I mean, there there are some that are just as good, but this one is is way up there to me. Cool, cool. Um, well, let's let's hear it. This is St. James Infirmary by Bobby Bland. I went down to St. James Infirmary And I heard my baby groan And I felt so broken hearted She used to be my very own I tried so hard My heart felt just like lead She was all that I had to live for Oh, I just wish it was me instead And we just heard St. James Infirmary by Bobby Bland. And that is going to do it for this episode, episode number wow. 22 of 1,000 Recordings. I know that flew by, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, we want to thank dude, Tom Moon, man. Thank you. Thank you, sir. This is been Thanks for really having fun. me, you guys. This was so much fun. Yeah. We, I mean, you have a completely open invitation to come on whenever you so desire. <laughs> cool so whenever we'll you want to come on dude, yeah yeah you are welcome um if you'd like to send us an email send us uh an email please at uh 1000 recordings podcast at gmail.com you can join us on twitter at one that twitter.com slash 1000 rp you can join us on facebook you can go to our website at 1000 rp.blogspot.com and I should I should add that I am uh, I've been they've asked me to blog again at 1000recordings.com and we we just sort of started that up uh, somebody in China built a Spotify playlist for the book the URL is there at 1000recordings.com and some comments that I have about it uh it's pretty easy way to navigate and find a bunch of the records and hear them yeah cool, cool. that's great is there anything Tom anything else that uh you want to uh, pimp or plug or or mention or <laughs> no? Really, just that I, I I've started to do some uh, writing for the site again. One of the things that you'll see in the next hopefully week is I'm I'm experimenting with this short format essay where we take a recording and. Uh, we list the recording that's in the book and then the next stop and after that and then sort of going one more step and suggesting you know sort of a third or fourth level of uh something to check out uh from there uh, as a way to you know reinforce the idea that the the stuff is endless and you know mm -hmm. even oh, yeah. with the the 
number as big as a thousand there's tons more stuff i keep finding great records and you know there it's very difficult to find the right framework for how to write about them but maybe this will we'll see how this works you'll tell me yeah no that sounds like a great idea can you give the listeners the url one more time sure it's www1000 the numeral one zero 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 recordings.com okay yeah definitely everybody go out and uh, check that out make comments uh you know in the comments thread and uh and yeah we'll be checking that out for sure um next week we've got coming up uh paul blay his album fragments uh from 1986 this is an album i i've never heard of so i'm excited to get into it um we have a gospel album blind boys of alabama then we have blind faith Mm. uh the album Parallel Lines from Blondie and Block. Is that right? Block? Yeah. Yeah. Bl- actually, it's Bloque. Bloque. Oh. From mm. Columbia. Yeah. Okay. I see that now. Okay. Yeah. Bloque. Cool. Uh, uh, and- <laughs> all I'll say about the Paul Blay is it's nice that it's still sort of winter weather. I know it's been a mild winter in, in a lot of places, at least in the East Coast, uh, because this is one of these records where. You, you know, a great way to encounter it is looking out at a bleak sort of gray sky day or, or you know, light snow kind of vibe. It's, it, it, it's a very meditative listen. It's very different from, it's not really even a jazz record. It's like a chamber music record. There's some beautiful Bill Frizzell playing on it. It's, mm. it's one oh, of my really? favorite little jewels. I love turning people onto this record. Okay. Well, great. Um, I love Bill Frizzell. I had no idea he was on that record. So, yeah. oh, great, great. I'll be looking. I'm, I'm in Indiana, so look, you know, the whole gray part won't be a problem for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, we've got um, one new five star review on iTunes that we need to read. Um, and listeners, um, if you want to go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a and a review, that'll greatly help us in uh reaching more listeners uh do you want me to read this again mitch or do you want to please please sir okay uh this is a five-star review from jones run and they say just discovered your podcast and the first episode was amazing it is so cool to hear all these different genres of music and hear both familiar and completely new to me and to learn more about the different styles and methods of musicians Thanks for all the hard work you're putting into this. Great fun to listen to. So thank you, Jones Run, for that review. Thank you, sir. We appreciate it. Right on. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's it's great. And um, of course, <laughs> you know we, uh, I can't overstate. You know that we really owe all this to Tom. So thank you, Tom, for all your hard work uh, in putting together this book, and uh, for all of us to to discover and enjoy. Yeah. So. Been, well, been thanks. Happy exploring. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um, we will see all of you guys next week. Thank you again, Tom. And thanks, uh, Tom. Yeah. Thank you guys. Take care, Mitch. Thank, care. thank you so much. All right. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week.